2005. Um, I lived in my car for a while, um, longer than probably most. And I was there because I was starting life again um, after a divorce. I was in the US at the time, so um, you've got to figure it out. And so I did a lot of weird things that you probably wouldn't do if you were a little bit broke but weren't so broke. I think what it taught me was, though, that there isn't anything you can't figure out. Hello and welcome to Propagate, the podcast devoted to young farmers and fishers. My name's Corey Haig, and I've been fortunate enough to visit with inspiring farmers right across New South Wales and the ACT. And that's where we find ourselves today, in the suburb of Fishwick, to meet with Olympia Yaga. And she's the founder and CEO of a company called GoTerra, which is definitely doing things a little bit differently. That's because Olympia and the GoTerra team are at the cutting edge of insect farming. It's a fascinating industry that is much more complex than your compost bin at home, and it's got a lot of people very excited about what it means for the future. So let's take the grand tour of GoTerra and find out just what's so exciting about insects. All right, so welcome, I guess. At pretty much the core of what we do is the concept of modular farming. As we look at farming practices today, it is the intensive nature of farming and the capital infrastructure requirements of farming and the centralised nature of farming that's causing some of these challenges around accessibility to food, food providence, cost of production. And so when we thought about how we do this with insects for us, it's always been about like, don't necessarily copy what's happening in so far as reusing that same model, because if we have to change then it can't just be change what we farm it's got to be change how we farm them and that's not a criticism to conventional agriculture by any means but it's just this isn't conventional agriculture and so we have to reimagine what farming an animal like this means so that we can actually create these truly new innovations within our supply chain. It's almost like you mentioned sort of two facets of the business. You've got the production and then you've got the waste management. That's right. Our core focus is to manage food waste in a decentralised way. But the nature of how we do that means that we also create livestock feed and soil conditioner, which then further go on to be a dynamic part of a closed loop economy. I think it's important to know who you are and where you belong in the supply chain. It's not trying to be too complex, but I think just knowing who you are. You say it doesn't mean to be complex, but some of this stuff looks pretty complex. <laughs> it's just set to dazzle you. It's the whole point, right? It is complex in so far as it's not usual to see it visually. It's not complex in that we have created modules. Those modules are designed for a stage of a life cycle. So they require environmental control, a level of automation, and they require a level of monitoring and management so that we're successful in that process. So yes, like there's lots of tubes and things running all over the place, but it, um, they are the same for each unit and only different in how they're applied based on the life cycle. So I'm glad we wowed you. Not the smell. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention that. What is the smell? So there's a couple of things that um, are contributing to the smell. So 
One is that insects uh, have a sort of a fishy odour and so one of the smells you're smelling is the chitin, is the leftover shells that we have and we've been doing some trials with how to render those down and how to play with them and so that smells a little fishy and a little, yeah, it sort of smells a bit odd. Not the most overpowering smell but it does have an, a sort of a fishy smell. The other smell is fermenting food waste. Um, so when we accept all our food waste we ferment it and so that sort of sweet rotty cabbagey smell again not the worst smell you've ever smelled it smells better than most kitchen bins but that's sort of how we manage our food waste so i'm glad you mentioned it i i know who i am i'm happy to admit what we do <laughs> so that's what goterra do but olympia is being a little bit modest there that's because as a company goterra have achieved the impossible they've cracked the code they've glitched the matrix They've made tech people get excited about agriculture. And when tech people get excited about something, it means elevator pitches and angel investors and startups and venture capitalists and all sorts of other buzzwords that don't make much sense. So how does someone who regularly refers to herself as a maggot lady deal with the cutthroat world of venture capitalists? It's different and it's not a world that I was familiar with before. And in fact, um, if you Google deeply enough, you'll find a Rabobank video of me failing at my first pitch because I didn't really understand what pitching was. I did a lot of Googling and I thought that I'd understood the, the context and the cadence, but I didn't. And so I gave a speech and everyone else pitched a company. I think the interesting thing, having been in farming and now being in this kind of farming is that startups and ag tech startups in particular have to stretch outside of agricultural boundaries. So you stay rooted where you are and, and you stay connected to what got you here, but you have to move outside of those circles and start interacting with people and different industries and stakeholders who potentially aren't familiar with what you do or how you do it. And yeah, it's been like, you know, getting to know a lot of different things really quickly, as fast as I can. <laughs> as someone who's been rather successful in that world, you're very frugal. I mean, looking around at the facilities, there's not a wasted cent. No, I've been really poor before. <laughs> so I lived in my car. Um, that's a personal thing that I'm not ashamed of. So when I look at money and I think about spending money, I, I've applied that that sort of feeling around spending money to this we raised a significant amount of money um, in our seed round 1.2 million but we were we were building hardware we were developing new technology and we were creating a biological solution we had to do those things all together and so there isn't money for sparkling water and as one of my vcs will will poke me about windows for our office. So we have to try and figure those things out and find ways for good enough to be good enough. For me, what's important is that we we don't save money for the sake of saving money. So spend it where we need to spend it. All the staff know sort of the rule of thumb and that is, uh, do we need it? Is, is that a real need or is it a want? Can we borrow it from somebody close by? So we've got lots of tradies around here that will help us with stuff. So can we borrow it if this is a one-off? If we do need it, have you checked Gumtree? <laughs> That's kind of a standing rule. And if you have and it's not there, then now you can buy. <laughs> About the only sort of VC thing that I can see is that you do bring your dog to work. <laughs> I don't even wear red sneakers or have a blazer over my shirt. No. The Netflix version of startups, I guess we don't really fit that. 
there's a couple of reasons. One, that's not who we are as humans. Like we have agricultural people and engineers here. And so they're used to being in warehouses. And so those things don't kick the can any further down the road. So sparkling water or fruit infused water that my staff joke about a lot, um, they are nice to have, but they don't get us any further. And I think everybody in this team is just so focused on getting what we do out into the world that would they wouldn't spend it on that if they could. We make up with it with uh, you know, 80s karaoke and um, there's dogs at work. <laughs> now, I don't mean to pry, but I'm really curious about the journey from your car to a million-dollar cheque. <laughs> um, so I... I think it's the same journey for anyone that's been sort of fallen in the trough and then got back up in 2005. Um, I lived in my car for a while, um, longer than probably most, um, and it, I was there because I was starting life again um, after a divorce. I was in the US at the time, so you've got to figure it out. And so I did a lot of weird things that you probably wouldn't do if you were a little bit broke but weren't so broke silly little things so I worked at a tanning salon and the manager of the ta- of the gym behind me him and I traded uh, memberships and that's how I got to shower and so you sort of realize what you have and what you don't have and you realize how if you barter or bargain those things like you can always find your way to a solution that gets you to work and so I'm kind of fortunate that I have that understanding and maybe I have it in a different way than some others because that's how we look at things today the biggest lesson that I learned was that you are you don't get out on your own the journey sort of getting out I guess getting out of the car to getting here is about knowing that I needed help knowing that people were helping me and so yeah I got out of my car I married a marine I ended up doing work with US Special Forces and then I got tired of my husband um, going to his timeshare in the Middle East and doing dangerous things and so I was like, let's go home to Australia and start farming. But the cost of buying a real farm in Australia is really expensive and so um, looked for sustainable farming solutions and ended up with insects. But the philosophy of like figuring life out has never left so it's that's why we've got a bunch of stuff that doesn't look fancy but does the job that it needs to do Um, because we know that those things are cosmetic and with more money you can make anything be more attractive or newer or slicker but can you do it with hardly anything and can you make it work within the very foundational parameters of what it needs to do and if you can do that then everything can be made beautiful after that. So now our light wavelengths just changed. You can hear the increased activity. They're like they're on holiday and it's warm and now they want to get saucy. The doof-doof music just started essentially. So we're sort of trying to mimic biorhythms and you can hear that they've increased their moving, they've increased their flying and that thumping noise of them hitting the ground is, um, is them mating. So you can see, see in the back there you've got those two that are back to back and all those other ones that are all back, that's, they're mating. So that's essentially what's happening now. And that's just an LED light on the wall? Just is a figurative term, but yes, it's just a light that took a lot of non-robotics person trying to figure it out, figuring it out. (laughs) 
<laughs> How did you learn about the mating habits of these particular flies? I was a sheep farmer and I've always loved to farm. When I started with flies, I just really want it to work and they fail so spectacularly when you first try that you if you, you either give up or you become so doggedly determined that you end up thinking and obsessing about them and I was the second um, and I just sat and watched them all the time. I used to have an aviary that I made out of a plastic uh, greenhouse and it had a t-shirt and I would put my head inside the t-shirt so that I could like watch them like an idiot. These flies are black soldier flies, so they're native to Australia or naturalised to Australia. They're a non-vector, non-pest species, so they don't eat as a fly. They will absorb moisture and take out on moisture, but then they're not eat actively eating. So their life stage as a fly is only nine to ten days. So they have a really short window of opportunity to find a mate, mate and lay eggs, which is completely different to how house flies operate. As a fly, they tend to not survive. Like if, if the window broke tomorrow, we would all be out of flies, but Canberra wouldn't be over overrun by flies. They'd literally hit that window and they'd probably come straight back inside. They'd be like, I don't know what's going on out there, but we, we don't need to be part of that. <laughs> I, I can't even fathom how you first began to figure these things out because, I, I mean, you're kind of writing the book on this. Not myself, but like there are a lot of people out there trying to figure this out and I think we all just sort of, like we're writing chapters alone and then we're putting those chapters together. And um, But certainly as far as Goterra is concerned, we are writing our own book and there's no book for farming insects, which is one of the reasons why the industry still isn't taking off robustly because there's no, when farmers call me and they're like, hey, we think this might be an idea for us and, I'm like, and they're like, can you help us? I'm like good luck like here's a, here's some manuals here's some stuff but I don't have the time to be the consultant in this field and there's some parts of what we do we can share quite a lot but we can't share everything and so then you've got this sort of gap you know it's not like sheep farming where it's just like we get it here's 60 million DPI articles and workshops and a field day you can go to like we don't have that so there's some challenges there Farming is always challenging, especially starting a new farm in a new sector. What's so interesting about Olympia, though, is that despite all of her obvious success and tenacity, she's not an egotistical CEO who believes the hype surrounding her. She was a finalist in the New South Wales ACT AgriFutures Rural Women's Award in 2018, and her work has even been honoured by a CSIRO taxonomist who named a new species of soldier fly after her. Hermesia Olympia. And despite all that, embracing the role of the guest-speaking, high-flying tech CEO is something that she's really struggled with. We touched on it before, but you mentioned the imposter syndrome. Sitting here, it seems incredible that you could feel that way. So how do you understand that? I was fortunate to do a lot of mindfulness training in the US, which is probably the most American statement a human can make. <laughs> But what it did was teach me to understand feelings and to have compassion for those feelings, which I don't think we do, right? So, like, it's one thing if you feel embarrassed or you feel scared and you can say it's okay to be scared because then you're like, I've, I can validate myself to that feeling. It's another thing if you're like, I'm scared, but I don't want to be scared and I shouldn't be scared and I, you know, everything is bad because I'm scared and now because I'm scared everyone will know. And so... Understanding that was really pivotal to me um, 
to being able to say, I have it, I, I feel like an imposter, I feel like I shouldn't be here, and, and being able to say, well, that's normal to feel that way, it's okay to feel that way, it's, we don't have time for you to feel that way, keep going. Yeah, that's kind of how I've managed it. Um, it doesn't necessarily lessen it or mean that there aren't days where you're like looking for a dark corner to rock back and forth in, but um, because that's the nature of the tempo of what you're trying to do. Like we're trying to do something big and I don't know if you always give yourself compassion. The biggest challenge then is to be able to say like you're okay, like <laughs> it's normal to be scared. It's your idea, of course you're supposed to be here. Um, and keep going. But, yeah, I suffer from it every day, yeah. And yet, you know, I'm looking around at awards. You've been often called on to inspire other people, especially women. So how does that reconcile? The annoying, unconvinced voice is always just like, oh, it's because I'm funny. (laughs) As Australians, we don't want to be chosen. We, yeah, we're like, oh, it's not really because of me. It's just because I couldn't find anyone else and it's a bad habit of our culture. I think you always find it difficult to be in your own skin. And so when I think about it, it's like I don't take it as a compliment to who they think of me. It's it's more like I'm here and I'm willing to to put some time in. Of course I come and mentor or come and talk because I want other women to hear that you can do anything and, and particularly for women because we do fight a lot of, we've got a lot of other things pulling us in a lot of different directions for a lot of different reasons. I feel like if they can hear that this girl that was in America doing this weird thing and then she came back here and she's in Fishwick and, like, if they can hear that story, I think they can potentially think about their own selves and go, oh, well, if the maggot lady can do it, I can do whatever I want to do. Yeah, it's a privilege to be here, right? Like, how did this happen? It's kind of amazing. Sometimes you feel like you're the person that everyone sees, but most of the time you don't. And I'm not sure if that's bad because hubris happens to all of us and so humility is important perhaps. (laughs) Were you ever tempted to walk away from this? Twice so far. Yeah, I got offered a really great job way back in the beginning. Um, It was with somebody who I was really inspired by and... um, it was sort of still in line with the work that I was doing in the with the US military, helping disadvantaged people, helping kids. It was a really exciting opportunity and I was like, oh. And it was my husband who actually was like he's because I was sort of couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And he was like, you can go and do that thing, but it will it will only be cool until you've finished doing it. And you'll finish it in six months. You'll still have to do the job, but the part that the what you love to do is like build, create, execute. And he said, that'll be over in six months and then you'll be stuck there building, like just executing the thing that you build. And he said, it's time for you to do something else. So he was the one that made me keep going the first time. And then the second time was right before we started the f- seed round and I was just, I didn't know how I was going to be able to manage it. So I was working in the farm 10 hours a day because nothing was automated back then. There was, so I was just shoveling food waste into maggots in bins and it was just me in this big shed and it was, and then I, you have to do all that work that goes to getting ready for an investment thing and I was just like, I can't, like, I can't. And, yeah, same thing. I just sort of sat down and um, I took a 
couple of days break and um, one of my girlfriends from the US called just randomly and and I sort of was like, yeah, anyway, I don't know if we're going to do it because, man. And she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and Tim, it's so fortunate, like the right people there at the right time because Americans are like champions of everything. They champion everyone, everything, all the time, doesn't matter what you're doing. And so it was like the right friend to have. And she's like, we do not we do not quit things we've started. And I'm like, don't we though? And then she just like gave me this like very brutal pep talk about, you know, life and what I was supposed to be doing. And and yeah, she basically bullied me back into it. (laughs) There is a shade of the unquenchable optimism that Americans have versus the tall poppy syndrome that Australians have. Do you feel like a bit of a mix of those two things? I think I'm very lucky to have spent 14 years in the US. In the US, I was still too Australian for Americans and I would try to champion my friends like they did and it felt uncomfortable because, yeah, you could make ashtrays out of faecal matter and they'd be like, that's amazing, I'll have eight. <laughs> and, and, and I'd be like, is it good though? And everyone's like, why are you always so cynical? And I never saw myself as a cynical person. And now I'm in Australia and I'm like, you're great, you're doing great. And everyone's like, ugh, you stop with the overexcited, like, yeah. And I'm like, oh. But I think they gave me a gift in, in that, in understanding that, like, you should celebrate success. We should be so proud of our friends, our family, the what we do, and we should say those things out loud. And I think... It's my least favourite trait culturally of Australians. And so, yeah, I think I'm lucky that I bring a bit of that. And it's funny when new staff start here, what's the boss drinking? Because she's so, like, good job and, like, high-five emojis and I send a lot of gifts. People who haven't been around that a lot are like, it's, it's not comfortable. Like, she's still saying I'm nice. And uh, they're like, yeah, you get used to it after a while. And I'm like, isn't that sad that we have to get used to being told we're good Do you feel that that's something that you are actively trying to change? Yeah, absolutely. I want Australians to stop it. I think it is at the core of why we have trouble commercialising our research. I think it's at the core of why most of our businesses go overseas. We have all the great ideas and none of them stay here. It's the one thing I wish we could get rid of. It is intrinsic to why we never actually realise our true potential, in my opinion. Absolutely. Because we are an amazing nation. Of amazing people. And if you say that out loud, everyone's, what's the first thing everyone says? Steady on. Easy. Go. Get over it. You know, like we always, you know, tell ourselves to stop. Sarah Nollett, an advisor of ours, the company called Authentic, and she's American and she said, it's never, I've never understood why people say in Australia that like being a try hard is an insult. As if trying hard is bad. Like, I think that's the best way to think about it. Like, we call people a try-hard as an insult. (laughs) So there you have it. That's Olympia Yaga, the CEO and founder of GoTerra. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Propagate, which is brought to you by the Soldier Flyers from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Young Farmer Business Program. You can find more episodes of Propagate on your favourite podcast app. And if you've got the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review. We are desperate to crack the top 10 podcasts about the mating habits of flies, or at least the top 20. My name's Corey Haig. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you can join us again.